What's your true north? And uh, thank God we have scripture. Thank God we have the Bible to give us bearings. Um, you know, feelings are cool. I like feelings. I like to be in a worship service and feel God move on me and, and feel the emotions. I like to feel the hand of God in my life orchestrating things. I, I, I'm, I'm a feeler. Anybody else a feeler? Okay, right? But what you've got to be careful of is being a feeler. And this is especially if you, have, if you feel a prophetic gifting in your life or a prophetic call. You'll always be moved by your emotions a lot of times. And so you have to counterbalance that at, at certain points because emotions are good servants, but they're terrible leaders. Okay? Emotions are good servants, but they're terrible leaders. And when Jesus is talking to us and gives us the greatest commandment that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, he encompasses the whole of the human experience. That all of our soul, that all of our emotions would be uh, wrapped up and led by God. See, sometimes I'll let my emotions lead me. And anytime I let my emotions lead me, I'm in trouble. Amen? Anytime that um, I lead my emotions and tell my emotions where they should be, then I'm in good shape. And this is the place where God is wanting us to get to, is that where our emotions don't lead us and we don't become reactionary, right? Anytime I'm reactionary to things that come against me, I always react in a bad way, right? The knee-jerk reactions are reactions of the subconscious and the sin nature that would reflex in a way that would be a common human response. But when I submit myself under the lordship of God and I begin to grow in relationship with God, suddenly I don't have to react the same way that I used to react. I can be proactive and already decide how I'm going to react when that situation comes up. So when I start my day, I want to start my day with the Word of God. I want to start my day declaring unto God that everything in my life is His, and He can do with it what He wishes, and that He's my Father, and that He can lead me in all paths of righteousness for His name's sake, and I want to be led by God. So when I start my day with that, suddenly when I'm faced with opposition or I'm faced with whatever might come my way, I'm already in a position, I've already made up my mind who is my Lord and how I'm going to respond when that situation comes. But when I start my day without that declaration, without that time with Him, suddenly I'm going into the day blind because I don't know what that day is going to hold. That's why God says, don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow has its own worry sufficient for itself. Worry about today, right? So I have to get my life in bite-sized pieces where I begin to walk with God in such a way that say, God, give me the grace sufficient for today, right? We want an instant download, don't we? God, give me the grace sufficient for 2020. Hello. <laughs> God's like, no, I want to give you the grace sufficient for today because I want you coming to me each and every day in relationship 
walking this thing out as I unfold and reveal the destiny in your life. And once you get this in your mind and once you begin to grasp this, that everything that happens to you or that comes against you, whatever it might be, is just God's plan to grow you in some kind of way, to further you in some kind of way, and promote you in some kind of way. Like, like that's what it is. Whenever you're facing the opposition, this is Satan's best attempt to get you off track. And it's God's attempt to use Satan against himself that through this test... He's going to give you a testimony, hello? And, and this is what God wants to do. And so we can't be ignorant of Satan's devices, right? And it never fails. We have an awesome moment with God. Get ready. Something is going to come your way. Something's going to happen. But if I'm not ignorant of Satan's devices, I'm already prepared for it. I've already thought past Satan's plans and I've thought into the next day with God and I've already purposed in my heart that I'm going to go with him. So a lot of this is that we're finding about strongholds and stuff. It's all mindsets. It's patterns of thinking, patterns of belief, uh, wrong thought processes about God and who God is. It's all these things that creep up in my mind and keep me in bondage and keep me from stepping into the real relationship with God and experiencing him fully. I heard of a, a pilot was teaching, uh, was, was talking about flying, and he said what happens in most of the time in these, when these small aircraft go down and crash is a lot of times it has to do with a storm or that they're in a position to where they can't see ahead of themselves. And for a long period of time when you can't see, Mike might have to fact check me on this for sure, but when they're going for long periods of time where they can't see in front of them, their mind begins to think that they're not going straight, that they're actually climbing. It's called a spatial disorientation or something like that. And so what the pilot then does to counteract it, he actually turns the plane upside down and begins to descend and crash into the earth. And so what they teach you in pilot school, according to this guy, was trust your gauges. Don't trust your feelings, trust your gauges. And that some of the planes actually have two of every uh, gauge so that you would know everything would be established by two witnesses. That when you see one gauge has got you going level, you'd look and see another gauge has got you going level. And so the feeling that's so strong that wants to crash me into the ground, I say, no, I'm going just fine. I'm trusting my gauges. See, when you're going through a storm, you're going to have to have something, a gauge that you go back to to say, wait a second, that's not truth in my life, right? Like, like, like there's sometimes when we're going through a storm, right, it feels like I'm upside down. And that I'm climbing. And so I overcompensate with my emotions and I run my life into the ground. And if we'll be honest with ourselves, we'll always see a pattern. I'll do good for so long and then something will come up and I'll crash it into the ground. I'll do good for so long and have the best intentions in my heart and I'll crash it into the ground. And so we've got to look back at these patterns and say, what is the gauge that I'm looking at? What is the instrument that is leading and guiding me in my life? 
And so you need to get you a handful of scriptures and chapters that become the truth that you live your life by, right? Because I can hear a bunch of facts, but that's not truth. Okay? I can have a bunch of facts, but it not be truth, right? It's like when I go to the doctor. I go to the doctor, I pay the doctor to tell me facts. But I don't go to the doctor to give me truth. Because they're making the best stab that they can, and thank God for physicians. But they're making the best st stab they can with the information that they're giving. So they can run reports and give me facts. But I'm not looking to them for truth. When it comes to truth, I'm looking to the Word of God and the Word of God to guide me and lead me in my life. Right? That's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for a prognosis to build my life on. Oh, this is what's wrong with me because I got this, 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 and this. Those can be facts, but that doesn't mean it's a truth. Because as soon as I eliminate the ability for God to meet me in this place and use whatever Satan meant for evil for something good, I'll begin to wear a label or begin to wear something that God never told me to wear. And then I'll normalize something that God said is not normal. So I walk into truth, but I get my truth from God's Word. I get my truth from God's Word. Because facts always lead me to make assumptions. Remember um, Joseph, right? Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers, and they took his coat and they killed a goat. And they put, you know, cut it up, dipped it in blood when they killed the goat, and then gave it to his dad and said, look, Joseph's dead. The facts would say, Joseph's dead. But the truth was, God had a plan in motion that he was fixing to raise up a deliverer and put him exactly where he needed to be to make provision for the family in a future that they didn't even know was going on. See, I can look at the facts and be held with a, with a bloody coat. But the reality is, is God is somehow in this working together something for the good. So while I have the facts, I don't ignore the facts. I don't, I'm not ignorant of them. But I'm also aware that my truth comes from God. And what God said is the final word of any situation in my life. So I can always go back to those gauges and say, wait a second here. Mind you come in alignment with God. And you come into alignment with God's word and God's thoughts and you come under submission to him and now you look at your life in the way that God says life actually is. So what is your gauges? What are you, what are you measuring your life by? What's, what's, what's informing you that you're flying level or not flying level? So these need to become your core values. God put this on my heart for my family. Come up with a mission statement for my family and come up with core values that will define and establish the mission of our family and what goes on in our house and what doesn't go on in our 
house. Do you have a vision like that for your family? Because if you don't, you'll just drift. You'll just be carried by whatever this and whatever that. Come up with a mission statement for your family. Get that from God. Come up with what are core values? What are we defined by? I tell this, used to tell this to my youth group. I said, if I walk into your school and say your name and give somebody one word, what do they say to describe you? If I walk in and say your name and say you got one word to describe them, what, what comes up? So if I go in your spheres of influence and I say your name, what comes up? If what comes up you're not proud of, then start changing some things so that the one word you'd like them to say is the word that comes up. Get a vision for your life. We need to perceive. Clean our lenses so that we perceive the right view of God. Because this is what God wants to do. He wants to give us the right image of Him where we can live out what He feels and thinks about us. And then that becomes good news for others. Okay. Now let's... uh, Go ahead and uh, get your Bibles open. Let's look at Matthew chapter 3. So just hold your place there and we'll, we'll, we'll definitely get to it. Matthew chapter 3. Now when we enter into the Bible and enter into the narrative of Scripture, we enter in in Genesis with God as a creator. And he creates man and makes them in their own image. He makes man in his own image and he, he begins to order and, and, and get the earth ready for man to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion and to basically rule the earth that, that man would be God's image that, he would, that God is spirit and that man would be the, the image of God on the earth to reflect to the earth how God is and how God rules and how God reigns, but all that would to be, uh, was to be worked out through relationship. Now, when you hear things like this in the, in the Ten Commandments and throughout the Bible, the Bible says that, that they raised up false images. There should be no false images before me, uh, the Bible says. So what an image was, an image was an idol or a statue generally. And this was the place that you would put this idol in your house and you would bow down to this idol. And when you would worship this image, the spirit of the actual God would come meet with that, meet you there at this place of the idol and that would be the place. And so the idol wasn't the God himself, but it was in the image of the God that they were worshiping. So when God establishes worship, he doesn't give himself to idols. He makes man in his own image. So in other words, the place where God would meet with people would be the man himself. That there wouldn't be another thing that I have to come to in order to meet with God. That God could meet with me face to face. So the serpent gets jealous of this beautiful reality, right? 
Because the serpent here is, is beautiful and, and very alluring and it draws Eve in. And so what the serpent is mad about is the fact that God gave the man he made of dirt his image to be his meeting place and his temple. So the serpent gets upset and says, I've got all the power, I've got the cunning, I've got the wisdom, I've got the knowledge, and I've got the beauty. Why are you giving him the dominion and power? And so the serpent begins to fool Eve and draw Eve into a place of deception. And so this deception is built upon a jealousy that God would meet with people and that he wouldn't meet with the serpent and the serpent would be his own thing. So this is the idea that works out into the role of Satan is that Satan is upset that we are God's meeting place and that we are made in the image of God. He thinks he's got all the beauty and all the smarts and all the stuff. Why doesn't he get all the glory and all the power? God doesn't work that way. God reveals himself as a God who is willing to dip down into the dirt and begin to model something after his own image and then make it a living spirit. So this is what God was doing in Genesis, that he was establishing man as his meeting place, as the place where he would be met with and that would reflect the image of him into the earth. And so Adam and Eve blow it and they fail and they don't trust God. And so they begin to perceive themselves in a wrong light. They quit perceiving themselves as the image of God and begin to perceive themselves that God is a ruler that is upset with them and that will not uh, enter into relationship and dialogue with them, but that they have to hide from and cover everything up from because there's no way God would want to meet with them. Even though God establishes clothes for them after they do sin, even though God is always being proactive to meet with men, that men would then go and try to earn their right to meet with God, that they would try to create religious systems that would make them good enough in order to be with God and have relationship with him. So from this reality, God starts with a man named Abraham and whom he's going to make his people through. He's going to start with this one man named Abraham. And Abraham believes God and goes to a place that he believes God is giving him to start a new nation. Abraham ends up finally becoming, after several generations, Israel and Israel's 12 sons. And then it ends up becoming a nation. And this nation was to reflect to the earth that the glory of God, the relationship of God, what it looked like to walk with God. And what happens is, if you've read the Old Testament, is, is that you have a generation raises up that does okay, and then you have another generation that comes up after them that doesn't do very good and, that, and fails the image. So God has to come in, bring judgment, so that the image is then restored back to the right thing. Once the image begins to look like the right thing again, they... Man messes it up, and then it ends up just being this cycle. So if you've ever read the Old Testament, especially 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you just see this cycle of like getting it right but messing it up, getting it right but messing it up. It's just like the whole thing is built upon this system of failure where man just can't seem to get it right with God. So the last book of the Bible is the book of Malachi, chapter 4, and this is the last thing that God says in the Old Covenant. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 
through 6. And it says this. Remember the law of my servant Moses, to whom at Horeb I gave rules and regulations for all Israel to obey. Look, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. He will encourage the fathers and their children to return to me, so that I will not come and strike the earth with judgment. So that's how the Old Covenant ends. There is a period after that Old Testament passage of 400 and some odd years of silence. It's called the intertestamental period. That there was no prophets to speak of. That there was no, there was, God was just silent for 400 years. Nothing deemed worthy enough to make it to the Bible or anything like that. There were speculations on what God was saying. There was, there was conjecture, but nobody knew what God was really saying. Nobody really understood what God was saying. So there was these books written, and so what they would do is they would come up with these books called fancy language. would be Apocrypha, which is basically they would get the name of a famous prophet, They would write the letter anonymously and then ascribe the name to that prophet on the letter to give it credibility. So it had the right name, but it didn't have the backing from the Spirit of God. So they were juggling these things. And so here here you have, can you imagine this? Could you imagine just 10 years of your life where God never revealed anything to you? Could you reveal a month of your life? Where God never showed you any kindness or said anything to you. I mean, I'm freaking out if, if I have a week where I'm like, God, what's going on here? There's something in my life. What's going on, right? They go 400 years with this as the last verse. is that somebody's going to turn the hearts of fathers and sons back unto God. Period. End. 400 years. Silence. Nothing. So the question then becomes, is God going to speak again? And when he speaks, what's he going to say? Because how many of you know silence can be interpreted a lot of different kind of ways? You ever text somebody something serious and never don't get nothing back for a couple days? Lay your heart on the line <laughs> in a text message and get nothing back? <laughs> You know you hate that. (laughs) Or call and leave a message, get nothing back. Imagine 400 years of that. And what does your mind do during silence? Speculates. Are they mad at me? What's going on with them? Paranoia sets in. And we begin to come to our own conclusions that aren't necessarily the Lord. It's hard to interpret silence. But that God would give us seasons of silence to see if we would go back to the gauge and say, wait a second. Yes, he's silent, but these are the truths that I know about God. Right? So I'm going back to the gauge. So here it is. 400 years of silence. God's not said anything. 
And I want you to look at this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. This is so cool. God breaks the 400 plus years of silence. Check this out. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. <laughs> and yet you come to me. Verse 15. So Jesus replied to him, Let it happen now. For it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. Remember, in the passage that we had just read, we read about there's one coming, like Elijah, that's going to prepare the way and begin to introduce a new era, a new age, that would end a prophetic age of Old Testament prophets, but then would open up a new prophetic age to where the voice of God would be alive in the earth again. And that this mission would be to get fathers and sons and daughters to turn back unto God and turn back into the true uh, father of the universe, right? And so he is arguing with Jesus because here comes Jesus and Jesus was his cousin, right? I tell you, I ain't ever met a cousin I'd be willing to say, no, you need to baptize me. Come on now. <laughs> because who do you know? You know your family, don't you? So if there had been anything in Jesus, Cousin John would have had some insight about it, right? Yeah. He would have had some insight about this baptism thing. But he sees something so pure and so perfect in Jesus that he says, man, you're the one that needs to baptize me. Matter of fact, when he comes up on him in the book of John, he says, behold, here is the Lamb of God who is going to take away the sins of the world. And then this one who's going to take away the sins of the world comes up to you and says, will you baptize me? He said, man, God, I'm not even worthy to... Tie your sandal up. But this is the heart of God. That he would place himself in the hands of sinful men. That the place where God wants to be is next to our heart and in our hands and a part of our life. Right? Like Jesus, as the, as the king, should have been I mean, just in our mindsets of how a king should be, should have been like, I'm taking over now and I'm baptizing everybody. And Jesus says, John, would you baptize me too? John, can I be in on your ministry and on your, in and on your life? Because there's not one part of me that's too proud to not be dipped by you at times. That this is the place where Jesus wanted to be in the arms of humanity. He submits himself to a child to be born. He surrenders himself to be helpless, to be taken care of by people. Like 
If I'm God, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to create some super powerful, perfect warrior angels. And this is what's going to give birth to Jesus. And they'll protect him. They'll keep him from falling. They'll always change him and feed him when they're supposed to. But God trusts humanity with his son and puts his son in the arms of humans. I'm sorry, but I know how I am as a parent. It's scary enough with my kids. Can you imagine God's kid? But God trusts you with Jesus. And he says crazy things like, greater things are you're going to do than me. It's like, Jesus, what are you talking about? And this thought of Jesus being so accessible so grinds at us because we know of our guilt. We know of our shame. We know of our failures. And so we say, Jesus, just get out of here. You're too good. You're too perfect. What are you doing in on my life? And God says, I'll surrender myself and put myself into your hands. And I'm okay being there. I'm okay being there. And this is the place where we hear God's voice for the first time in 400 plus odd years. When he's in the hands of a man. This is the place. God says, I'm willing to be placed in the arms of dysfunction. Because my destiny is with men. That your dysfunction doesn't disqualify you from holding Jesus. That you are right where he wants to be. You are the meeting place of God and you are exactly where he wants to be. With all your mess, with all your stuff, and with all your failures, God says, I belong with people. That my destiny is they are my image bearers. That they are my temples. So this is what sets off God's voice, check this out, verse 16. After Jesus was baptized, he saw he was coming up out of the water. The heavens opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my one dear son. In him I take great delight. God breaks his silence. And how does he break his silence? This is a man in whom I'm pleased with. Not only is this a man whom I'm pleased with, this is my boy. This is my son. And I'm pleased with him. God shows us the place of his pleasure. And it's in a man named Jesus. So if I go to Jesus, I'm in a place of his pleasure. 
that if I'm going to Jesus as weird and as crazy and as messed up as it looks sometimes, that I'm in God's pleasure. Because in Jesus, he is well pleased. The beloved son in whom he is well pleased. God loves a person, and it's his son. So he's pulling us into a new reality of family. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now remember when we started in Genesis, we found out God is a creator. But Jesus existed before creation. So Jesus gives us a glimpse of who God was before he created anything. So since Jesus has always been a son, that means his dad has always been God who's always been a father. So Jesus gives us the glimpse of God prior to creation. And he sets right the character and nature of God as a father and then says, from this place, God created the world. And from this place, he set everything into motions so that we could know who it was who created so that we could then live in the light of who created us and not under the principles and missions of commandments and different things of that nature. So that I would honor the commandments of God, not because he's just creator, but because I'm in his family. And now I'm obeying those commandments because I have the same DNA as he has. That God is establishing not rules and principles, but identity. And this is what Satan wants to steal. This is what he wants you to not get in your mind. He wants you to think that God's not your father. He wants you to think that God doesn't care. He wants you to think that God is, 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 is riled up by your actions, that God doesn't, you know, he wants you to get you so unsettled that you just give up trying because at the end of the day, you throw your hands up and say, well, I can't please God anyway because I'm just messed up. When Jesus is establishing, there's no place I won't go to have encounter and meet with you. Even unto the cross. But God demonstrated his love for us, Romans 5, 8, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God would establish relationship and who he is so that we would be so firm in it that we couldn't help but live and reflect out the reality of who he actually is. Now, notice the timing of this, because this is when Jesus started his ministry, right? So Jesus, at this point, hasn't preached one sermon. He hasn't done one miracle. He hasn't raised one dead person. He hasn't done anything that we would deem to be Jesus-y, if I can say that, right? <laughs> And God looks at him and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, without him having done one miracle or one thing. God is establishing relationship before performance and giftings. And many of us think that we are growing in God because we have giftings or we're using our giftings or not using our giftings. And we say, oh, I must be really mature in God. I'm getting to use my giftings. Or I must be really close with God because I'm using my giftings. 
A gift, get this, are you ready? A gift is a gift. And if it's a gift, you did not earn it. So a gift is a grace, not a sign of maturity. A gift is a grace. Say, wow, man, that guy can really do this or really do that. It's a grace. It's a grace, lest anybody should boast at how good they are operating in a gift. But that's how our minds get, right? Say, man, that person must be really close to God. Look at them operating in that gift. A gift is not a badge of maturity. A gift is a gift. It's a gift. Now, what is real maturity? Well, that would be the fruit of the Spirit. Patience. Kindness. Come on now. Gentleness. Self-control, right? Like... Like these virtues, like this is the thing that you're to look to if you're growing. But we always look to a performance-driven, Americanized church that's about a stage and getting up and showing off in front of people. So, of course, we've thought giftings meant maturity. Character means maturity. And what if we honored people for who they were, not what they did? it would probably undo the performance culture that we're in and would probably unlock people to operate into greater levels of their giftings. So God doesn't love Jesus because Jesus does everything right. He loves him because he's his son. He said, this is my beloved son, not with whom I'm pleased. No, in whom. This is my beloved son, in whom. Not with whom, in whom I'm pleased. In other words, my satisfaction in him goes deeper than what he is able or not able to do. So Jesus didn't impress God. <laughs> Jesus was God, right? Like, like this, not like an impression, like, ooh, I'm going to really impress you, Dad, and Oh, yeah, yeah, you are impressive. It's a relationship that is unbreakable. That's why Jesus says things like this. Anything I do, I'm just repeating what I saw the Father do. Anything I say, man, I already heard him say it. That it would be this unification, that it would be this togetherness of identity where you couldn't see where one started and the other one ended. So what's he trying to pull us into? A relationship that's so close that we can't see where one starts and the other one ends. That's why in, in, at the final day when Jesus has fully glorified and redeemed us, the Bible says we will look upon him and be as he is. We're going to look like Jesus. That's the goal. To be a son and a daughter. Ready? The goal of the Bible, the goal of Jesus, to make a family. Period. A family that he can live with and be with all his life and never have to tell him to go or leave. Like that's God's goal. His relationship. His goal is relationship. 
400 years, the record of silence broken by saying, this is my one dear son. Not this is the Savior in whom I'm well pleased. Not this is the servant in whom I'm well pleased. Not this is the king in whom I'm well pleased. Not that this is the Lord in whom I'm well pleased. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. A new paradigm is being introduced with Jesus. To where the whole earth, if they respond to him, would be called the children of God. This is what the Spirit wants to do. When, we start, when this opens up, we start to see it all through the Bible, right? How do we pray, Jesus? Our Abba, who art in heaven. What is the Spirit, get, the Spirit of adoption trying to get us to cry out? Abba, Father. <laughs> like, this, this is the Spirit's work. Is to get us to realize who's your daddy. Who's your dad? And when we realize where we came from and don't buy Satan's lies of his false identity that we came from all this junk over here and we realize that we are God's idea and God's creation knitted and formed in the womb suddenly... I realize, wow, I come from God, so I can start to walk into the DNA of who I actually am in Jesus, and that is a son and daughter of the Most High. That the creator of my universe is my Father. That's good news. That's the gospel. <laughs> That's good news. And this is what every religion is after. The ability to please God. And here's God pleased. Get this. Hasn't done anything, remember? And here's a day laborer in his 30s with calloused hands. Probably dirt under his fingernails. And God said, here's a man in whom I'm well pleased. With no seminary training, <laughs> no Bible college, just a guy that knows how to swing a hammer and spend time with God and build things. And God says, I'm pleased with that. And the church has done a lot to demasculinize the church. And you watch these Jesus shows. Jesus is always like this girly guy who's emotionless. It's like we picture Jesus as like this robot. Like he's trying to not do anything wrong. Like Jesus has to wear his own bracelet, what would Jesus do? <laughs> what would I do? <laughs> oh, yeah, I would respond kindly here. <laughs> Jesus was just being who he was. 
that he wasn't acting or trying to fulfill something. He just was. And this is the place that God's calling me and you to be, to just take a deep breath and be. And in that place, encounter him in honesty, and then he'll work on the things that need to be worked on. So Jesus' goal is to bring us into places of sonship. That this is what he wants. Let me give you just give you some scriptures here. First Timothy chapter one verse fifteen. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But here is why I was treated with mercy. So that in me, as the worst, Christ Jesus could demonstrate his utmost patience as an example for those who are going to believe in him for eternal life. Why did God save you? So that he could show how patient he is by choosing someone like you and like me that are pretty messed up. Like God didn't look down and say, man, here's a select group of people that are really cool. I'm going to save them. He says, hmm, how am I going to show love and patience? I better pick the most hard-headed ones I can possibly find. There they are. (laughs) Now I can show my patience because of how messed up they are. I can unfold my patience through relationship. And show them that I'm willing to stay as long as it takes to bring deliverance and to bring healing. People put their chest out. I'm God's son and daughter. Say, man, you must have been a hard head. (laughs) I'm a child of the king. Man, you're hard headed. Come on, you know yourself. You know how hard-headed you are. God bears with you and stays with you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 22. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, whether things on earth or in heaven. And you were at one time strangers and enemies in your mind as expressed through your evil deeds. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy without blemish, without blemish and blameless before him. <laughs> John chapter 1 verses 12 to 13. But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he is giving the right to become God's children. Children not born by human parents or by human desire or husband's decision, but by God. 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that whenever it is revealed, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Luke eleven thirteen. if you then, although you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Isn't there more to life than food and mere, uh, and more to the body than clothing? Look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they are? And which of you, by worrying, can add even one hour to his life? Why do you worry about clothing? Think about how the flowers of the field grow. They do not work or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of these. And if this is how God clothes the wild grass, which is here today and tomorrow tossed into the fire to heat the oven, won't he clothe you even more, you people of little faith? 2 Corinthians 5.17. So then, if these are some gauges. I'm just giving you some ammunition here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. See, what I'm learning is, is that righteousness is a gift. It's a gift that God wants to give you in order to enable you to walk in relationship with him. It's like God came to remove every barrier between you and him. Like the only weapon that the enemy had in his hand was unforgiven sin. That's why he's called the accuser of the brethren. Is because he wants to accuse you of things and keep you in the bondage of what you've done. But Jesus comes and gives you his own righteousness, the righteousness of God, places it on you, gives it to you in order that you can walk in relationship with him. And what happens sometimes is we have these two voices battling all the time, right? We have the voice of God that's trying to cut through, and then we have the voice of Satan, which is factual. It's based on things we've actually done. So we think that it's more true because it's got more facts in it. But God knows where we're going, not where we are. So God will prophesy you out of a place and tell you where you're going, and you'll have to believe his voice that that's more true than the facts that the Satan's reminding you of in the back. Okay? So, so, so this is, uh, let me give you scripture for this. So Romans chapter 7, this is what Paul says is the battle. Okay? We're closing with this. Romans chapter 7 verse 14. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold into slavery to sin. For I don't understand what I'm doing. For I do not know what I want. Instead, I do what I hate. You ever been there? But if I do what I... Now listen to this, what, how brilliant what he comes to here. But if I do what I don't want, I agree that the law is good. But now it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For I want to do good, but I cannot do it. 
For I do not do the good I want, but I do the very evil I do not want. Sound like he's in a cycle of pretty conflicted stuff here, right? Now look at verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, get this, it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. Verse 21, so I find the law that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So get this, verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. So he's saying if I have this desire to do good, that can't be coming from the devil. So I've got the desire to do good, but I seem to have, be having trouble with the execution. So what Paul does is he divides himself up into a new man whom Jesus is working on and an old man that is fading and passing away. And he's got to decide every day which one he's going to put on. Do I put on the new man whom Christ is forming and has relationship with, or do I put on this old man and walk in an old way of thinking and walk in a false identity that believes sin is who I am? So Paul is not saying he's not culpable, right? It's not like Paul's saying, well, I didn't do that. That was the old me. <laughs> yeah, you know. Paul's not doing that at all. Paul's saying, that was a part of me, of the old man that did that, but my repentance is so deep that I'm disavowing that guy and saying I'm actually this guy. And I'm not going to let Satan convince me I'm this guy when I know Jesus has given me truth beyond facts and knows where I'm going and says I'm actually this guy. So what Paul is doing here is he's, he's disavowing. His repentance is so deep, he's actually cutting ties with this old person and stepping into the new thing that God has for him, right? So sometimes our repentance is like this. God, forgive me of that. It's like deeds. God, forgive me of this. God, forgive me of that. God, forgive me of that. That's okay, but that's not getting to the root of the identity of who's doing it. You're still... Uh, putting yourself in this old man and asking for forgiveness in this old mindset. That's why things never change and you're just asking God to forgive you of things you consistently do wrong. Deeper repentance would say that is an old me that is fading and dying and this is the truth of what Jesus says about me. So from this place, I'm repenting and disavowing and getting away from that and I'm stepping into the nature of the new relationship that God has established with me through his son, Jesus. So real repentance is this. God, forgive me for identifying with my old life and not walking in the new life and the abundant life that you have for me and that I'm supposed to walk in. And that this is Satan's tactic. And that's why he roars. He wants his, his voice to be the loudest voice. But the loudest voice isn't always the most true. Matter of fact, the loudest voice in the room most of the time is trying to overcompensate to cover up from something that they're really guilty of. 
right? <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> so what happens is, is okay, here, here's an illustration. Remember Elijah? And he's hiding out and he's looking for the voice of God. And he sees like a whirlwind. And it says the voice of God wasn't in the whirlwind. He sees an earthquake. And the Bible says, but the voice of God wasn't in the earthquake. And then I think he sees like a fire. And God says, it wasn't in the fire. And then the Bible says this, that God's voice was in the still small voice. That if something's the loudest in your life, it's probably whatever voice is loudest might not be God. Because to hear God's voice, I've got to be able to listen to a whisper sometimes. It's like when me and my dad are talking, he doesn't show up and say, Hey, Matt, what's going on, buddy? He's like, Hey, come over. Sit down here. What you been up to? That many times God's voice is the still small voice. And we've got to be discerning to learn what voice is what. And which voice to listen to. Because it's just hard to believe that God would want to come close to us sometimes. And this is anybody that's ever been called. Right? Like Paul says, dude, I'm the worst sinner possible. Why are you calling me? It's like Peter. Right? You know, Jesus shows up on the shore. Hey, cast your nets on the other side, right? And he does, and it's like a big catch of fish and they can't even haul it in they finally get it in and he falls on the seashore and he says God depart from me I'm a sinful man in other words why would you bless me but you know God doesn't even entertain those thoughts or that he doesn't even argue with him about it he says follow me and you'll become a fisher of men It's like God, instead of dealing with his, his, it looks to be holy, like, oh, I'm this, get away from me. Instead of dealing with that, God actually promotes him and calls him to the place that he's calling him to. And that's what prophecy does. Prophecy pulls us from the place that we are and calls us into the place that God is calling us to be. got to learn to listen to that voice. Listen to the voice of God. Because he's got big things for you. I like those Rocky movies. I love an underdog. I pulled Chance aside the other day. Remember when you first hired Sam Pittman? I said, we're going to win a national championship. And Chance bowed up. He tried to fight me right there. He said, man, what's wrong with you? 
I love an underdog. You show me the sorriest person, I'm going to prophesy the goodness of God all over them. I'm an underdog guy. And that is on tape if we win the national championship. Somewhere down the line, y'all go back. I'll pull it up. Just in case. That was the Lord. <laughs> but Rocky's like this like rough guy that's like, a, he like collects money for the mob. And he like stumbles into a championship fight. And he's got this trainer called Mickey. And we can't repeat a lot of Mickey's dialogue, okay, today. But he's always calling the best out of Rocky. He's not always telling him what he wants to hear, but he's telling him what he needs to hear. Because he's got to get Rocky to see what's actually inside of him if he's going to stand up and fight against somebody that's a world-class champion. And so something happens. Mickey dies in Rocky IV, I believe it is. And so at this point, Rocky loses all his millions. He loses everything. I know we're getting real spiritual here. Rocky IV, okay, yeah, I get it. It's okay, just stick with me. So he, uh, so, so he loses everything, and here he is. He's back to the old neighborhood. He puts the old jacket on, puts the old hat on, puts the gloves on. And here he is, he's got his ball that he's throwing around, playing handball, walking through the tough streets of Philadelphia. And he's got an identity crisis. At the very end, he gets in a fight with the guy who's the villain in the movie. And the guy's really putting it on and beating him up. And he's on the ground. And when he's on the ground, he goes back and he hears the voice of Mickey in his head. Who says, get up! Because Mickey loves you! Get up! Because Mickey loves you! And this is what God is speaking over us. Get up, son and daughter! Because I love you! And he's going to keep saying it to you and speaking it over you until it seeps into every fiber of your soul. And you quit trying to perform and you quit trying to outdo and you quit trying this and you quit trying that. And you just step into who you actually are in God. And then you're going to start winning battles. You're going to start changing things. People's going to start coming to you for stuff. You're going to begin to influence things and move things. You're going to move the needle in culture. You're going to move the needle in your life. Would you stand to your feet?